Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne, and welcome to season three. We're calling them seasons now instead of calling them giant gaps without explanation. It makes us look much more professional and less disorganized. So we are going to start off season three with a discussion about voodoo methods in dog training and how not to get screwed by kind of dubious dog trainers. So struggle with voodoo. I I really like science and science does apply a lot to dog training. And because I mean, it's psychology and psychology is a science. It's a soft science, but it's a science nevertheless. And what I struggle with is we see a lot of dog trainers. Um, I come from the horse world. We had a ton of horse people who were what I effectively referred to as voodoo practitioners. They like to use words like energy and joining up and and mad, just kind of magical words that imply that they had some sort of secret insight into the magical mind of an animal. And the issue I have with this is we are training animals that are working in the same psychological set of rules that humans are. And we know this because Skinner, who did all the psychological research that we now rely upon, or most of it, some was Pavlov, did his research not on animal, not on humans, but on animals, and then took the research he learned on animals and took it to humans. So when we discuss animal and human psychology, remember that 90% of what we talk about in human psychology doesn't come from humans. It actually comes from rats and pigeons and dogs. So when we talk about dogs and horses, like they're unicorns, like there's some sort of mystical, magical animal that you need to have special skills and special body language to communicate with, to be frank, we're speaking out of our ass. And what we're doing is we are still affecting animals within the contingencies of behaviorism within the Skinner rules, but we're putting a veneer of woo on top of it. And the woo is what sells. And... The issue I have with that is is they solve problems, and I have no problem with them problem, solving problems. The problem is is their disingenuousness in explaining how they're solving problems. So we're going to get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts on this. So one of the things I like to hear is prong collars. So everybody's familiar with the little metal prong collars. There are a lot of folks out there right now who are big proponents of this particular collar, stating that they don't hurt you know, they put them on their own neck or they've done this or they, they don't hurt. And that it's just pressure release. Pressure release is an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, that is 99% of how we train horses. The idea that we need a collar with big metal prongs on it to utilize pressure release, however, is disingenuous. And it's not true. Pressure release can be just as easily maintained and done with a slip lead or a flat buckle collar. We know this because, again, in horses, you can use anything from a halter, which is just essentially, you know, six pieces of nylon put together around the horse's face where we use pressure release, all the way up to the most ludicrous and awful one-pound bits that just have tons of torque and can really destroy a horse's mouth. And everything in that, con everything in that continuum uses the same principles of pressure and release. The issue comes in is if I hand you a horse bit, like a spade, which is, has a, you know, two and a half to three and a half inch long port, which is the part that goes into the mouth. 
and it, it goes back to the palate. If you can imagine something like a spoon in your mouth, right? There's a fulcrum in that spoon that rests on the lips, the edges of your lips, and it goes down to shanks to go down to your reins. If you pull on that fulcrum, that spoon rises up against the top of your mouth. Okay, that is not a comfortable feeling. When we talk about pressure release, we can use anything from a halter, a piece of nylon on the horse's nose, to that giant bit that affects the whole mouth and can cause excruciating pain if misused. And the argument, I remember this as a kid, the argument always used for folks using things like spade bits well, was, well, you barely have to touch it. Well, no shit, because a horse is terrified. Because at one point, you didn't just touch it. At one point, you showed the horse what that tool is capable of. And that tool is capable of causing extraordinary pain to that animal. And so, of course, going forward, the horse is going to do everything in their power to evade that pain. And so, yes, even the slightest pinky movement is going to cause that horse to move quickly because alternative B is getting hammered in the top of the, the palate of their mouth with a giant piece of, of metal. And I always recognize that when I was a kid. I'm like, this is bullshit, and I recognize this is bullshit. And so now I hear dog trainers who are adults and who should know better telling you that prong collars don't hurt dogs, that it's just pressure release. To which, of course, the natural challenge would be, well, why can't you use pressure release on a flat buckle collar or slip lead? And the argument is it's much more precise. Well, that precision, just like a spade bit, comes from the threat of what the dog felt the one time the person at the end of the other end of the leash gave a hard enough correction for the horse or the dog to recognize the power of the tool that's around their neck. And it's the threat of the power of the tool around their neck that makes them react to the tiniest of movements. So I have no, pro I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of the of the tool in this case, obviously. But I, I get that there are folks out there who are very skilled and talented at using them. And it, this is not about that. This is about lying to people. This is about claiming things that are not true as though they are true. A prong caller's function is that the threat of pain exists and own it. If that's the tool you want to use, fine. Don't lie to people. Own it. This tool can cause your dog pain, it's the threat of the pain that causes pressure and release to be very effective in this case. I can use pressure and release very readily and very easily with a flat buckle collar. All dog trainers with any skill set can do the same thing. They can use a flat buckle collar, the normal collar that has your dog tags names on it to get the same results. The issue is, is that those results take a lot more feel for the human being and it takes a dog who's willing to listen to that and has been trained appropriately to handle that. And again, going back to horses, which kind of is where I come from, it's the difference between what we refer to as a snaffle bit, which is just a very, very simple piece of steel versus those big, torquey, fulcrum-ridden monsters, is I can ride a horse with the most minimal piece of equipment, either in their mouth or just, a. I mean, I rode my horses with a, with a halter on. And I'm using pressure release. I'm using the same techniques. I just don't need a huge monster piece of, of technology that is a giant threat. It's the bat hanging over the horse at all times. And this is about not necessarily using the tool. Again, 
you're welcome to use whatever you please. The problem is when you lie either to yourself, which I'm thinking these people are way too smart to be lying to themselves, or they're lying to the public. And they're lying to the public because the public doesn't want them hurting their dogs. And if you get a client because you're lying to that person about whether or not you're going to hurt their dog, honestly, you're a piece of shit. Dog owners need to take responsibility for educating themselves so they, they can avoid voodoo practitioners. So another big thing in dog training, and this also came from horses, were the whisperers, you know, and I'm not going to name names, but everybody can look up horse whisperer. They can look up dog whisperer. Um, they can look up any of the magic new voodoo techniques in horse and dog training, and they'll see a bunch of people who talk about energy and communication and just a bunch of woo garbage that treats these animals like they are some other being, that they are not a creature of blood and, and fur that lives on this planet and shares our same behavioral modalities, the behavior modalities that were brought up, that were learned by using the species involved. And that if we just communicate with our dogs through some magical means, by the way we stand or the way we approach them or the energy we project, like how the hell do you project energy? I'm sorry. That's not a, th um, that the dog is going to magically respond. Again, the problem in this comes down to the fact that they are still, whether they are wanting to use the words or not, using the paradigm that was put down 80 years ago by Skinner. And that paradigm is predicated on four quadrants of punishment and reward. And that animal is being manipulated, not through energy, not through voodoo, not through talking to the stars or painting rainbows on your forehead. That animal's been being manipulated through the four quadrants that all animals respond to. And we, you, the dog owner, need to walk through the bullshit to find out what, what quadrant is in play here. Because that matters. That matters a lot. And again, you are welcome to use punishment. I allow my students to use punishment. We discuss punishment all the time, whether or not this is the place, whether or not this is the time, what kind, how we're going to use it. It's not about whether or not it's appropriate or inappropriate to use punishment. There's always a time and a need in most dogs' lives for some level of correction, help guiding them the right, the right way. It's not about that. It's about being lied to so that you think that woo magic energy is being in play when in fact the dog is being punished. And careless use of punishment without a clear understanding of what the desired behavior is, is unethical. And I don't give a shit if you wrap it up in all sorts of voodoo and garbage and magic. None of that's real. What's real is the four quadrants. So if you are acting on your dog and you are trying to change behavior and you're changing your energy and you're doing this and you're doing that, it all comes down to is your behavior affecting the dog and either making a behavior less likely to occur in the future, in which case that's punishment, or making a behavior more likely to happen in the future, in which case that's reward. The simple way to look at this is behavior is a thing. Behavior, we can look at a dog and say, this is a behavior. So the behavior is chasing the cat. The behavior is laying down, sitting, you know, anything that the dog is doing that is a behavior. And how we choose to affect that behavior is where our intervention happens. And that intervention is only going to fall within those four quadrants. If we want the behavior to go away, we are going to use punishment. 
If we want the behavior to increase, we're going to use reward. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no magic here. So if somebody says, oh, here's this magical new tool, it will stop your dog from pulling. I don't care if you use that magical new tool. But what you do need to know is that magical new tool is punishing your dog for pulling. If somebody comes up and says, I have a magical new tool that will cause your dog to stop barking, fine, use the magical new tool. But understand you're using punishment in that moment to make your dog stop barking. And if that's not what you want to do, if you recognize that the reason your dog is barking is because your dog is fearful and adding a punisher to the dog in a fearful state is probably contraindicated, then you need to recognize that you're utilizing that part of the, the spectrum of training and you don't want to do that. You want to find another method. So when we are addressing a behavior, we are addressing it through science. We are not addressing it through voodoo. And we have to be very wary of people who claim to have new magical methods or who are finding words that are mean something else. I was talking to a dog trainer many years ago, and she was trying to explain to me that she could train outside of the, the paradigm that I'm discussing with you here. And I'm like, okay, give me an example. And every one of her examples, we could walk back and say, okay, but you're still working within science. Uh, you can't escape it. And you can wrap it up in all the fancy language you want, but it's never going to change the fact that the science remains the same. Uh, there's another kind of dog trainer out there right now who likes to use the phrase punishment by reward. That's, that's a really fun new one. So the, the thinking is, well, punishment makes a behavior less likely to happen. Reward makes a punishment more likely to happen. And the thinking is that we are punishing away a behavior by somehow interjecting a reward. Well, science tells us that's bull. That's not a thing. So when you backtrack through the, what, the example that the person gives, what that person is actually doing in that moment is introducing what we refer to as an interrupter. And that interrupter has a positive correlation for the dog. So the example I would give is my dog is, is in my house, let's say, and she's sniffing something dangerous like a scorpion. Well, I'm going to use an interrupter. Hey, what hey means is come to me, you get food. Or stop doing the thing you're doing, you get food. So hey, it has a positive correlation for my dogs. It's an interrupter that the dog recognizes as being a marker word for food is arriving or praise is arriving or something good is arriving. If every time she approaches that scorpion, I say, hey, I'm not punishing her going towards the scorpion. I'm interrupting the behavior and asking for another behavior in its stead. That behavior is moving towards me or moving away from the scorpion or whatever I've trained in its stead. And I'm not decreasing scorpion approaching behavior. There's no aversive there. There's, she's not learning that scorpions are something bad to be avoided. She is simply being interrupted in that moment every single time and being asked to do something else. And that probably would only be effective if I'm 
in the room. Um, if I'm not in the room, she's not going to have a memory that scorpions are necessarily bad. Now she might have developed over a period of time if I do it enough times, which I tend not to allow things like that happen multiple times because scorpions should die. Sorry. So usually they're quite smashed by the time she sees them. But let's say she, she's starting to learn, oh, you know what? Scorpions mean go to mom. That's what that means. Well, I've just created a behavior chain and I've done that through reward, but I've never punished her desire to go towards a scorpion. I've not removed that behavior. I've simply put another behavior in its stead. And dog trainers have been doing that forever. And we've never tried to wrap it in magical language. We've simply said, your dog jumps on people. Why don't you teach your dog to sit instead and we'll pay the hell out of that. That's called an incompatible behavior. We've been doing it forever. It's not magical. It's not voodoo. It's not punishment by reward. It's it's nothing new. And that's where I really worry when people start wrapping things up in magic and confusing people. And so what I, I challenge everybody to do is when your trainer is speaking to you, A, always ask where the science lies. What's the science here? Is there science? And sometimes there isn't. I'll be honest. Sometimes we are saying, you know what? Uh, we don't have a lot to back what we're doing here. But that's honest. I'll say things like that all the time. I, you know, I believe, so here's a belief. I believe that taking a high drive dog and giving them a job and giving them purpose will make them easier to live with. Is there scientific evidence that backs my play? I don't believe there is. And I will be more than willing to tell that to somebody if they ask me. Is there science on this? Nope, there's no science on this. This is, you know, this is my belief system. I I have plenty of, you know, anecdotal evidence for whatever it's worth, but I absolutely can tell you there's zero science to back what I'm saying here. And then you have to, then you as the, as the owner of the dog have to measure what I'm saying against what your own evidence, the rules that I'm talking about that do have science in them, things along those lines. So if somebody's trying to tell you that say an e-collar doesn't hurt, right? That's the big thing that these e-collar people love to say, oh, they don't cause any pain. Well then what's their function? How do they work? Tell me how they work. If you're telling me that by putting this magical collar on this dog, I'm going to suddenly stop a behavior, but it doesn't hurt my dog. You bloody well better tell me the science on this. And, and you, you better demonstrate it. And I'm going to freaking even if I can't read body language, I'm going to take a video of it and you're going to, I'm going to show it to my friends and they're going to tell me. So nothing's magic. Nothing's magic. And when people try to sell you a bill of goods, it's because they're afraid that if you knew the truth, using an e-collar when turned up to the appropriate level to stop a behavior hurts. It hurts. That's what they do. I have dog trainers who come out and snake aversion train my dogs using an e-collar. I don't, I don't have e-collars and I have no access to rattlesnakes. I know that that is a very bad day for that dog. I am not fooling myself. I'm not kidding myself. The trainer's not lying to me and saying, oh, we're just going to make it a little, little, you know, vibrate a little bit. It's like a TENS unit and it's just going to give your dog a little massage when he sees a rattlesnake. Well, if I gave my dog a little massage when he saw the rattlesnake, my dog will not find a rattlesnake aversive. That's not how it works. The only way it works is if the dog sees a rattlesnake and you freaking light the dog up and he has a shitty, shitty experience. And that shitty, shitty experience sticks with that dog for the rest of their lives. The same way 
when you're a little kid and you grab the really pretty fly that was yellow and black and got the snot stung out of you and it hurt like hell, you remember that for the rest of your life. And if you're smart, you don't grab wasps. If you're mostly sane, you don't see a wasp and drive off the road. You don't react to the point where you're completely deranged when you see one. You just don't want them near you. So you have an aversive reaction to wasps. You will give a wasp space. Um, I give wasps space, but I don't run off a cliff to avoid a single wasp. Uh, you know, I th- the, it's a very aversive experience. And I want the reaction from the dog to be very similar to the reaction that you or I would have if a wasp was sharing our vehicle. I would slam on the brakes, I would open the door, and I would escort my wasp friend out of the car. I don't want to be near that thing. That thing causes pain. I'm an intellectual being, and I still recognize that this is a painful object, and I don't want to be near it. You know, you, you, learn, you learn these things. You stub your toe. It's an aversive experience. You're like, I'm never stubbing my toe again. That's, that doesn't work. We all stub our toes. <laughs> we try to be careful, but no, it doesn't work. Um, so anyway, the biggest, the biggest takeaway I hope you guys all get from this is you're gonna ha- if you want to train your dog, you're going to have to know a little bit about the science. I'm sorry. It's just like I'm hoping that if you have a kid, you know a little bit about how punishment reward works. I mean, I hope um, they have some fundamentals. I mean, if I get in my car, I at least understand that there's different holes for gasoline and oil. I mean, I do understand enough to recognize that if I have flat tires, the car shouldn't move. I need to have some baseline of knowledge to adequately handle this piece of machinery. So I'm not asking you to become an expert in behaviorism or, you know, knowing when classical conditioning becomes operant conditioning. That's, that's like not necessary. Just like to go to the doctor is not necessary that you understand any of the verbiage, but you do need to know how your body functions. That if you don't eat, if you don't eat any vegetables for six months, you're probably not going to feel so great. So you do need to understand that any behavior that you're trying to affect is either being punished away or being rewarded into existence, into, into a higher level of existence. So it's really important that you have a fundamental understanding of that. I mean, I just, I just don't think there's any way you can really expect to train a dog unless you have an understanding of it, even if that understanding is not necessarily the language. I mean, I, I trained horses for a very long time without understanding the language of training. I just understood what I was doing at a given moment. Thousands of dogs, millions of dogs, millions of horses have been trained without Skinner, but they were still doing the things that Skinner discovered. Just like gravity affected us long before we discovered gravity. Science is always there, whether we recognize it or not. And this goes for the other side too. When people try to inform you that the only way to get a dog to work using any sort of punishment is through pain or fear, that's erroneous as well. And we know that. And the example I like to give is, is I like to sit outside and read. I like to sit outside in the sun and just kind of hang out with my dogs and read a book or just watch my dogs or just watch my chickens or just watch my sheep. That's rewarding for me. If the sun gets too hot, I move into the shade. If you look at the behavior of reading in the sun as a behavior, and you look at the sun coming out and getting too hot, and my response to that, that the sun becoming too hot punished me. I was punished into moving into the shade. And the reason you know that I did that is because I stopped sitting in the sun with my book. And because I could have done anything. You weren't building a new, you weren't building a new behavior. I, it didn't matter where I went. I could have gone into the shade. I could have gone into the house. I could have gone into my car and turned the air conditioning on. I had multiple options of what I could do 
The only thing I didn't want to do anymore was sit in the sun. So that's how you know it's punishment versus uh, a different reward contingency. But I wasn't afraid of the sun and I wasn't injured by the sun. I was simply not comfortable sitting in the sun any longer. Pressure and release, a lot of the things we do that are pressure release with dogs, that is a more along those lines. Pressure is stepping into your dog and physically taking up space next to your dog and your dog moving away from that. We use that a lot in herding. I step into their space and they step out and then I step back and that's rewarding. So stepping in is a punisher, stepping back is the reward. And I shape behavior by integrating those two pieces. We all live in a world that's filled with punishers and rewards. You know, running might give you an endorphin high, but it also might give you blisters. And you have to choose, and everybody makes their own choices, which is the bigger issue. Uh, as When I was a runner, I would read stories about people who'd finished their runs with their shoes filled with blood. And I'm like, well, no flipping way. Well, for them, running was so rewarding those endorphins were so incredibly powerful that they had no problem running through blisters. Whereas if I got the teensiest little twinge, I was out. <laughs> I'm like, this is a hike. I am turning my run into a hike. Because for me, running was never that rewarding. And so when we look at animal training, it's not from a different planet. It's, it's working within that same contingency. If I want to run more, I need to make it more rewarding. So how I tricked myself into running more is I, as often as I could, ran brand new trails. I love finding new trails. I love exploring new places. I live in a beautiful part of the country. And even when I, when I was in other, other parts of the country, I ran. I ran the downtown streets of, of Rochester, New York, and lo- found some great trails. And it was beautiful. And it's a wonderful new way to see a city that you're unfamiliar with, a part of the country that you've never been. That makes running very, very rewarding. I ran with friends. There was peer pressure, so that was a little bit of punisher, right? That's a little bit of, oh, if I don't show up, how will they feel about me? Social pressure, which is a punisher. You know, being ostracized by your friends is punishing. That's why high school and junior high school sucked for so many people, is that constant terror of ostracization, is that how you say it, from your peer group. You know, we all we all went through high school and junior high school, and we all remember that tightrope of what is allowable and what is not allowable in society, and that shapes our behavior, and that shapes our behavior through punishment, generally, by and large, and reward. They're, they are toggling. We are always toggling between the two. When you're in the in crowd, you're rewarded by having friends and people to chat with, uh, a group of people to be affiliative with. That's hardwired into our brains is a good thing. And, but then there was always that fear, that niggling fear in the back of your brain. Am I going to say, maybe it's just me. Am I going to say something really breathtakingly stupid? Am I too dorky? Because the answer was always, yes, I'm too dorky. Uh, To be cool, to hang with the cool kids. You know, cool was always a facade that we all put on. So when you think of what you put into just getting through junior high or high school, That is running that tightrope between punishment and reward. And our dogs don't, thank God they don't go to junior high, but our our dogs are living in that same world where the world is filled with punishers and rewards. You run really fast. My dogs are really bad about this. They run really fast. They collide with fixed objects. That's punishment. 
theoretically, well, it's punishing. I, I think it should serve as a punisher. So aversive means it's not something that feels good. So banging your head against a truck bumper because you weren't paying attention would, I would define as aversive. And that seems reasonable. Most intelligent animals don't run into the back bumpers of cars. Theoretically, if your dog does it enough, they should stop rampaging mindlessly and bashing into cars. Uh, that should be the effect. We don't get to choose what's punishers and what's not because it comes down to what's how the dog is affected. If the dog continues to run into the back bumper of a car, then clearly it's not aversive enough. It's like the blisters in the shoe. It's not aversive enough to make up for the joy and excitement that they're getting from running around the yard like an idiot. So even though we might say that running into the back bumper of a car is something I wouldn't want to necessarily repeat. And we're like, our dogs are dumb for doing it. it they're not dumb. They are being rewarded elsewhere. Uh, people who jump out of airplanes with parachutes seem like blazing idiots to me. But, and it's like the most terrifying, that would be the most terrifying aversive experience I could even fathom. And people do it on purpose all the time. So for them, the high, the reward, the excitement, the joy of doing this thing outweighs what I could only presume is the terror of death and plummeting from a plane to your death. So, and we all do that. We all do that. We all live in this paradigm. So this idea that we live in that there's some other third voodoo method is not effective. The other thing we have to be really aware of is this idea that anytime you ever use a punisher on your dog, A, you're Satan, B, they're always going to be fallout. And that fallout is always going to be massively detrimental to your dog and destroy your relationship with your dog. And it's going to ruin everything going forward forevermore. Uh, I hope most people are smart enough to look on their history with their own children and their own spouses and their own lives as being kids to recognize that that's utter bullshit. Uh, we were all grounded at some point, presumably, by our parents. If you were me, you were probably grounded a lot because um, I had a different agenda than my parents did. And the idea of the, pun the punishment was to serve as a punisher, right? And you're grounded with the idea that you will not do the thing again. That's the whole point of, of doing that. And whether or not I did the thing again tells, tells more about the out how I was weighing the positives I was weighing the rewards of if ignoring whatever the rule was versus the punisher and getting caught because there's always getting caught that's always a piece of it that's why we all speed even though we know that punisher of it getting a ticket is out there we speed because uh, punishers aren't always available so the fallout from me being grounded as a kid is not needing to have psychiatric care for the rest of my bloody life. Uh, now, if you're abused, abuse is not punishment. The person doing it might claim that they're doing it in that manner, but they're not. Abuse is abuse and abuse stands alone. And I think there's an issue that we have in some drug dog training circles with people with histories that are probably coming out of abusive relationships, either with men or with their parents, where they have correlated any form of punishment with abuse. And those are completely different things. And I know that coming from the horse world, because sometimes in the horse world, it is a very fine line. Abuse is something you cannot avoid. 
Your actions will never make an abuser change their actions. You, there's no evading, evading an abuser. A, an abuser goes far beyond the minimum required uh, a punishment to get the point across. If I'm reading in the sun and the sun turns into a supernova and like zaps me and catches me on fire, that's abuse. <laughs> That's, that's, that's way more effective than was necessary in that moment to get me to move out of the sun. So I think we really have to divorce ourselves from the idea that ever using a punisher is abusive. And we, we've fallen, many, many trainers have fallen into the trap of the idea that if you are ever, ever decide to use a punisher on your dog, whether that be a squirt bottle or an eh -eh or a little bit of pressure release or any of that, that you are effectively an abuser they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the science and they have a fundamental understanding, uh, misunderstanding of the difference between what is effectively a disorder of the person who's doing the abusing and a, having a goal in mind. Abusers' goals are not to maybe necessarily get rid of a behavior. It's to control another being. And uh, I don't know the science behind abusers. I can't speak to that. But there's a vast difference and hopefully we can recognize that. And we don't fall into the trap of that we are slowly sliding into in this country, and I believe a large part of the Western world, where the idea that you would ever grab a squirt bottle and spray your dog for barking or whatever is abuse. It's not abuse. It's not. Um, I'm sure we can sometime at some point get some science in here and define abuse, but the fact that the dog has control over the over whether or not that punisher comes into play means it isn't abuse. If the dog chooses to never bark again after that, let's say it's a super sensitive dog and you squirt it once and it says, yeah, I don't like being squirted in the face, so I'm just, barking's not that big a deal for me, so I'm just never going to do it again. The fact, the difference would be is if you're an abuser, you're still going to squirt the dog. You're going to find some something to find a reason to squirt the dog. If you're a tra dog trainer, if you're training the dog in that moment, you put the water bottle away. You've solved the problem. The problem has gone. There's no need to continue reaching for the bottle. So that's a little bit of a digression, but I think it is important to understand because there are ideas circulating in one part of the dog training world. We talked at the very beginning about what I kind of the balance training part of the dog world, which is the part that's going to tell you that prong collars don't hurt, and yet they're magically more effective than a flat buckle collar, but we can't explain why. And from those folks who would be considered balanced dog trainers, all the way to the R plus folks who are the positive reinforcement type of trainers, which I fall much more under, who state fallacies, like if you ever punish a dog, you're abuse, that they're, that they're easily conflated. They are not easily conflated. There is a vast difference between abuse and training. And we know that because the learner has control. If as a kid, I stopped doing whatever it is that got me grounded, uh, my parents would stop grounding me. <laughs> I simply chose to uh, uh, seek out the reward system of whatever it was that I was doing and to hell with the consequences. And we do that. I mean, that's the other thing we have to be aware of is that doesn't make a dog dumb. If you're quote unquote punishing a behavior, and the behavior is not going away. You're like, oh, the dog is dumb. Well, mm, no, not really. The dog has chosen its own advantage over the disadvantage of getting caught 
by you in the moment. And there's a lot to unpack on that. You know, how vigilant are you? How consistent are you? How strong is your punisher? How strong is the reward system? What does the dog know in this situation? Does the dog actually know what the desired behavior is? Um, there's a lot there, which is why I don't reach for punishment a lot. I, do, I prefer not to because it just leaves too many openings for my dog to have to spend way too much of their bandwidth trying to figure out what the, the solution is. I, I like to build behaviors rather than eliminate them as best I can. But I there are moments and times when I think it's quicker and easier just to say, knock it off. And I don't think that's going to cause my dog to go running to their shrink. I think that we, we better be building better, more resilient dogs than that. And uh, if we're not, that's a problem. Uh, that's a totally different problem. One last example, and then I'll let you guys run away. I often get people who say they don't want to bribe their dog with food. They, they don't want to they don't want to use treats. And I, I kind of get it, I guess. I, it's really hard for me to understand the concept, but okay. So they would say, well, well, praise work. And the answer to that doesn't lie with me. It lies with the dog. If you ask your dog to do a behavior that they already know, like sit, and you give the dog praise, and you ask the dog to sit 20 times, and you only give play, praise 20 times, does the behavior increase or decrease? If the behavior is just as solid at the end of that 20 reps as it is at the beginning, then I'm going to say that praise is effective. I mean, unless the dog has a huge learning history without, with treats, but let's say it doesn't. Let's say, let's say you taught the behavior with treats. It took, you know, five reps and now the dog knows sit because reps, uh, learning history does matter. And now you do 20 reps with just praise. If the dog continues to do the behavior enthusiastically, quickly, exactly how you want it with praise alone, then that tells you that the dog will work for praise. I don't get to choose what's rewarding for your dog. Your dog does. What you will find is the vast majority of dogs will stop doing the behavior. And it's because they don't find it rewarding. And people really struggle with that because they're like, well, I, I want to teach the dog behavior, but I don't want to use treats. I'm like, okay, well, your boss wants you to work for them, but they don't want to use money. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, if you want somebody to do something for you, you better bloody well pay them. Because the only alternative is punishing them into into like intimidating the shit out of them into doing it. I mean, you can get a you can get a slave to do a behavior for you, right? I mean, there are, again, we can only look at human paradigms. This is a great example of human paradigms. If I want somebody to work for me, I've got three options. I can intimidate and enslave them and make them work for me. But then the work is going to be crap, right? It's going to be flat. They're going to make mistakes. I'm going to have to watch them 24-7. It's a lot of work. I mean, that is the reason the South was so broken for so long in America. Um, everybody was armed to the teeth because they're always terrified of a slave revolt. It's a big deal. And so that's a really inefficient way to get work out of people. It's cheap. Well, it seems cheap, but it's inefficient. But you're not using rewards. So yay, good job. You didn't use any treats to get what you wanted. The other alternative is to trade something that the other person wants. Uh, that's how a lot of externs and internships, both of those work. You are trading your knowledge for the other person's labor. So, and you know, there's laws, but whatever. Um, you know, if somebody comes to me and they're like, I want to learn dog training and um, in, in exchange, I get my floors swept or what have you, then there's a trade going on. But 
I'm still paying that person. I'm simply paying them in a currency that, that they that's valuable to them. The last is money. And that's very straightforward. If you want me to work for you, then I, I'm going to want payment because I have bills and I like to have things. So the idea that you're going to come up to your dog trainer and say, well, I want to train my dog, but I don't want to use any currency that the dog thinks is of value, then there's a fundamental issue. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding. The dog should never work for free. Why? Why should the dog work for free? No one works for free. We don't, no one does. You know, there's no free lunches for a reason. The person you ask for lunch from, they're not working for free. So right now on Facebook, at least, there are a bunch of ads. I'll train your dog. I have magical methods and I won't use treats. Well, you're using something. And if you're not using treats, then you're using play. And that's fine. Ivan Belabinov does play. He's a world champion. He knows what he's doing. Good for him. You know, I mean, that's a fantastic, powerful tool. And I personally believe that it only works for certain kinds of dogs. I personally believe it takes a huge skill set on the person who's doing the play. I also think you can get fewer reps in, but that's my, that's just what I believe. If you can get away with it, if you can play with your dog and get exactly the same results. I mean, like I said, he's a world champion. I'm certainly not going to argue with somebody who's a world champion, uh, but he is using Malinois. So we have to be aware of that too. Uh, playing with a Malinois is, a, I think, a whole different animal than playing with a Chihuahua or playing with an animal who's already uh, scared. You know, if you're dealing with a frightened animal, they're not going to play at all. But outside of play and outside of food, uh, if you're not using some other, I can't imagine another motivator strong enough to change behavior. So if you're telling me that you're training a dog and you're not using food, and then I inquire a little deeply, more deeply, and it turns out you're really not using play either. Well, I've got to come down on the fact that you're using escape avoidance, which means that you're using something that the dog finds so aversive that it's going to do the behavior that you want rather than sit in the position that it's in. And that is ethically dubious, to be honest, to train every behavior that way. Um, again, I think that's how we train horses. Most of how we train horses, honestly, is escape avoidance. But there are much, much better ways, especially with dogs who want to work for us, for us to find a way to help them. Again, it's not about how you necessarily want to train your dog. It's about telling the truth. If you're going to tell me that you're not going to use anything that the dog wants to do or wants to work for, then the only other option is me telling the dog what to do and enforcing it in some manner. And that would be something along the lines of pressure release, which we do use in sheep, but again, with herding, the dog has a very clear reward system placed in front of it, which is the sheep. So when we're using pressure release in dogs on herding dogs, the reward is standing right there full of wool. And they have easy access to it, and they simply have to go around our set of rules to access that easy reward, and we're able to give it to them. If that reward is not available, if you are simply using escape avoidance to train your dogs, like the old Keeler method, where you put a choke chain on a dog and a long line on a dog, and you effectively let the dog hit the end of the long line, and if through repetitions the dog learns that if it wants to keep its head attached to its body, it better keep up with you, that is escape avoidance. You've never given the dog an opportunity to know what they want, and you've really, the reward is avoiding pain and distress. And that's really a problematic way of training. But again, these people don't say, 
I'm going to use escape avoidance. I'm going to use pressure release. I'm going to use a collar or something that puts so much pressure on the dog that the dog has to do the thing or it's deeply uncomfortable for the dog. And the fact of the matter is if you cannot shout how you train your dog from the rooftops proudly without faking it, without lying and and hiding the truth between behind gobbledygook and make-believe words and voodoo bullshit, then you're a liar. And you're starting a relationship with your students and your clients as a liar. And that is deeply problematic because it's not as important to me how you train your dog. It is super important to me that everybody be on the up and up and be honest about how you're training your dog. And that's why you guys as consumers of dog training, because this podcast is not for other dog trainers. Other dog trainers would pick this podcast apart and tell me that, oh, I misspoke when I said R plus and I meant R negative. And fine, we that's the sort of shit we get into. Normal people who own dogs don't care about any of that stuff. What they hopefully care about is, can I get results with my dog? And ideally, how do I get them the most in the manner that is the most ethical and fair to my dog. And if somebody is hiding and lurking behind magic and I can do all sorts of things without treats, I don't know why you brag about that. It's like I can get people to work for me without money. Well, that's not a good thing. I mean, I just find that very disingenuous. Because again, if, if I tell you I have the ability to make children who have no right to to argue with me work for me without money i hope you think well that's probably sketchy but with dogs for whatever reason we don't and we don't really want to uh, we feel some some people really feel conflicted about the idea of paying their dogs to do the jobs that we want them to do and, and I, i'm i'm not really certain i understand where that comes from i think they think that they should do it for free but uh, we don't do anything for free in our lives that I'm aware of. I mean, even relationships come with uh, rewards and, and punishers. I mean, you know, the silent treatment, that's punishment, right? Uh, rewards are, you know, good trips, fun trips, fun surprises. Uh, for me, it's a new book. Uh, those are rewards. And those are rewards that you get for staying in the relationship being a part of the family, blah, blah, blah. We all work for something. And to say to our dogs that they have to exist in a separate paradigm is ludicrous. So anyway, I hope you guys got something out of this podcast. Hopefully you got something out of this episode and you kind of have an understanding of what it is I'm talking about. Please, if you enjoy our podcast, like, share, review, and some other word that I never remember, like, share, review, Follow. Follow. That's the biggest one. My God, I forgot. That's the most important one because then we just randomly show up in your podcasts when our new season starts. Uh, I do that with Bitey into the Dog. So uh, Michael Shikashio, he's a fantastic dog trainer. He does seasons, but he's plan he plans ahead and well, whatever. But because of that, I can forget about his podcast for months at a time, and then suddenly it shows up in my inbox, and I'm all excited. So anyway, like, share, subscribe, review, and we hope you guys have fantastic training. Have a great day, and uh, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you very much. Bye.